This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for December 15th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, let's start this week with some context. In the United States, case rates continue to rise rapidly in some areas, but they're fairly steady in others. Europe is in the midst of a wave, but the cases might be leveling off there. And all of this is occurring as the newest variant virus, Omicron, has been detected in locations throughout the world, although we still don't know what its impact will be. So this is a good week to revisit disease prevention. We know that disease can be prevented in a few different ways. One is to avoid exposure. We can do this by measures such as face masks and testing. A second is to be vaccinated. And a third is to get infected. This is certainly the riskiest way, but we do know that the immune response generated after infection does provide some protection against reinfection. This week, we published work that addresses two of these issues, how much protection might be afforded by prior infection, and then the first large study of a new approach to vaccination. Let's start with the risk of reinfection. It's a difficult question to study. Why is that? You're right, Steve. These are tough studies. Once a person is infected, We don't currently have a test that can identify whether they were infected in the past. Thus, we have to identify those people who were previously infected through medical records. But of course, those are also imprecise. Not everyone who was infected was tested. In fact, using retrospective means for identifying infection probably tends to identify those with more symptomatic disease. One might imagine that these individuals have a different, perhaps more vigorous immune response than those with milder disease or asymptomatic infection. Despite that limitation, there are very good reasons to think that infection could produce good protective immunity. The infection is a mucosal infection. So unlike the systemic vaccines that we're using right now, the virus might induce more mucosal immunity. And while many vaccines include only one antigen, the viral spike protein, infection might produce an immune response to a large variety of viral proteins. So, Eric, you raised several important considerations. How do we know who's been infected? There are a couple of important ways that we assess who's infected or has been infected. The most important of which that we're all used to are the rapid PCR or antigen tests, which are assessing current active viral replication, typically in the NARES. This can be done for symptomatic reasons or for surveillance reasons which can inform us of who's infected now. How to assess prior infection can be from records that identify those who had a positive viral test. But there's also the serology. And the serology is a little bit tricky in that we have the serology for the spike protein, which is the one many of us are used to. And this detects a very important antigen on the viral surface and is also in many of our vaccines, and therefore can be confusing as to who's been vaccinated versus who's had prior natural infection. And then there are other proteins that there can be an immune response to that are not in vaccines, such as the nuclear capsid. And that can tell us if someone has had prior infection, if tested for this antibody or this immune response. Now, this is in some vaccines, so that one has to know which vaccines are being used in different communities to understand this. I think of this a bit like the hepatitis B surface antibody and hepatitis B core antibody, helping us understand who's had prior natural infection versus vaccination. 
we need to understand the kinetics of these immune responses, and we need to have access to samples to be able to understand prior infection. These types of assays are not typically in the medical record, or at least not historically, as they were not routinely used. I agree, Lindsay, with all of that. And I think it would be very important to learn more about how these tests can help us understand the course of infection and of prior infection. We don't have that many viral infections that reoccur, and we haven't studied reinfection with viruses all that much in most diseases. So we still have a rather unique problem here, which is once someone is reinfected, are there markers of reinfection? And it's not clear that they exist because the immune responses to that second infection are going to be very similar to the first infection. It's certainly true that sorting out IgM and IgG and which antigens are showing up at different times might help, but it might not. So it's not clear that we're going to know once someone is infected, whether this is a first, a second, or third infection. No, absolutely, Eric. I think that that is a real challenge as we watch waves of coronavirus go around the world and try to understand second and third infections and the implications. Another point that you raised was the issue of systemic vaccines and mucosal immunity. And I think this is a really important point as we think about preventing severe illness, which is what our traditional vaccines do, such as intramuscular inoculations, and understanding mucosal replication, mucosal immunity, and potentially the implications on transmission. And the mucosal compartment and the systemic compartment do have different kinetics, biology, and immune responses. We do have some vaccines that have tried to exploit the mucosal compartment and eliciting immunity there. We can think of this in terms of the oral polio vaccine versus the inactivated polio vaccine, the oral typhoid vaccine, versus the inactivated typhoid vaccine. So it is something that we are familiar with. We do have vaccines currently in use that try to exploit these different compartments to induce protective immunity that have different types of advantages. So I think this is important biology that we need to continue to better understand with SARS-CoV-2 as we understand natural infection and natural immunity, as well as vaccine-induced immunity, and how the compartments behave in relation to the different biology. So the current study comes from Qatar, a country that's produced a wealth of data on infection and vaccines. We've talked about several earlier studies from Qatar in the past, including one that addressed the question of how well prior infection protects against new infection. So what did we already know, and what do we learn here that's new? You're right. A few weeks ago, we talked about a study that looked at the risk of severe disease and death from COVID-19 in those with a documented prior infection. The conclusion of that work is that prior infection is highly protective. This study was different. It looked at any infection, regardless of severity. The researchers identified two cohorts, one with a documented PCR-positive infection, largely occurring in the spring and summer of 2020, and another that had no history of infection and were antibody negative. They matched them one-to-one using age, sex, and nationality, and ended up with more than 44,000 individuals in each group. In these groups, they looked at the incidence of infection from January through April of 2021, a time when both beta and alpha variants were circulating. 
the investigators excluded anyone who had received vaccine. The results were pretty striking. Overall, there were almost 80 cases per 10,000 person weeks in those with no prior infection and fewer than five cases per 10,000 person weeks in those who had previously been infected. This was true for both alpha and beta variants and yielded a protective effectiveness of more than 90%. A couple of things strike me about these data. First, it's a particularly well done study. There are no perfect numbers, but it seems to provide convincing evidence of substantial protection against reinfection. Second, this immunity was pretty long lasting as most people had been infected at least six months before. But of course, there are limitations. Primary among those is that this was a younger group with a median age in their 30s. It's unclear what these results would mean for those at higher risk of disease. And the two variants, alpha and beta, have been replaced completely by delta and perhaps increasingly Omicron. And we don't know how well we can generalize these findings to the newer variants. Finally, as I said, it's likely that the previously infected population is skewed toward those with more symptomatic infection and therefore those who might have the most vigorous immune responses. Eric, I agree. It is terrific to see data emerging from investigators who take advantage of how their healthcare system is organized, their population structure, and how testing is done countrywide. And these data provide important insight in understanding how reinfection can be ameliorated by prior infection. However, there are as you note, important considerations in interpreting these data. There are different populations. As you note, there are different baseline variables as to who's getting infected at which time. The variants of concern are changing over time. The timing from infection initially to subsequently and the impact on immunity is not directly studied. But overall, it is reassuring or encouraging that prior infection provides a modest amount of protection against subsequent infection. I do think it's interesting how the beta variant is able to be studied here and demonstrates less severe illness, given that some of its features overlap with Omicron in terms of immune evasion. And I'm cautiously optimistic that this may have some insight into how Omicron may behave. Maybe it's worth saying something here, Lindsay, about the idea of herd immunity as a strategy for protecting populations. For many infections, it's certainly true that herd immunity is a very good control measure, whether that's reached through vaccination or through infection. But in the case of COVID-19, this does seem to be a very difficult way to go, despite data like this. First, it is a dangerous disease, and there are a large number of people who are susceptible to very severe disease and death. And we know just looking at the number of deaths and hospitalizations that we've had, how bad a disease this can be. So waiting for infection is not really a very humane way to go. Apart from that, despite how good these data look, remember, this is a young population with good immune responses and the people who are sickest may not be represented in this population because they may be taking steps to avoid reinfection. So I don't think this tells us something about the population at large. It does tell us about a good chunk of the population, but it doesn't tell us something about the population at large. And as you said, 
it's encouraging about some of the variants that we're going to be seeing, but we don't know what the results will be when we look at these new variants. Of course, the evolutionary pressure to produce these variants is dictated in part by the pre-existing immunity in populations. And so are being selected in areas like South Africa, where there has been heavy prior infection for immune escape. No, Eric, I think your point about herd immunity is very important as we try to control this pathogen. And it's worked successfully for diseases like polio. But there, there are three serotypes. The immunity is potent and long-lived, and the virus is not continually escaping. So I think we need to better understand the longevity of the immune response of those previously infected for new emergent strains coming out of the context, as you point out, of immunity. These variants are emerging in populations with some level of immunity. And we have to better understand how this virus is rapidly emerging compared to some of the other viruses we're familiar with and therefore has implications on prior immunity. So encouraging, but still much for us to learn. Let's move on to vaccines. In the United States, there are two vaccine technologies available. The mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna on the one hand, and the viral vectored vaccine from Janssen on the other. But globally, what else is out there? There's one more major technology that's being used in vaccines right now, and those are inactivated viral vaccines. The primary Chinese vaccine falls into this category and is being distributed in a number of countries. Inactivated viral vaccines contain many antigens. They're the whole virion subjected to some sort of chemical inactivation. However, that inactivation process can also change the antigenic characteristics of the constituents. Also, like other inactivated or subunit vaccines, these require adjuvants that stimulate an inflammatory process to provide maximal effect, and their efficacy can vary considerably with their composition, dose, and route and timing of administration. While we don't have published phase three data, real-world effectiveness data suggests that the Chinese vaccine is somewhat less effective than other vaccines. So, Eric, I think the inactivated vaccine from China is an interesting vaccine platform. It has deep roots in vaccine development for other types of vaccines that we've used. And it has certain attractive elements, which include multiple viral proteins. Therefore, the immunity is broader than targeting the spike. This has theoretical advantages in terms of a broader-based immune response, but it also has theoretical concerns, which is the immune response is not necessarily targeting the most important immunoprotective epitopes. And so as vaccines emerge and get deployed, we have to better understand the balance between different strengths and weaknesses of the technology. Ultimately, large-scale efficacy trials are the most important for us to understand how well a technology or a specific vaccine works. But then there are differences in the approaches that we need to dissect out to see how these technologies can best benefit our public health strategies. Another way to make vaccines is to use purified proteins. We've published a few early phase studies of these subunit vaccines. Today, though, we have a larger phase three study of one such vaccine, NVX-CoV-2373, made by Novavax. So what is this new vaccine? 
As you said, Steve, this is a subunit vaccine, which consists of recombinantly produced spike protein that's made in insect cells and embedded into a nanoparticle containing a saponin adjuvant. The general approach is similar to that used for many other vaccines, unlike the newer technologies present in most currently available vaccines. The fact that this is an existing technology has held some promise for a potentially easier regulatory route and manufacturing capacity. Earlier interim studies had shown promising results in Europe and South Africa, though the results in South Africa, where the beta variant was dominant, were modest. With these results, however, the company has obtained emergency use authorization in at least a couple of countries and is filing for an EUA in a number of other countries. And today we're publishing the results of a large placebo-controlled randomized clinical trial. So describe that. How was it set up? The trial was performed in multiple sites in the U.S. and Mexico and included adults who were healthy or had stable chronic disease. Participants were stratified by age and randomized two to one to receive two doses of the vaccine candidate or placebo spaced 21 days apart. The study vaccines were administered between the end of December and mid-February with data collected through mid-April. The primary endpoint was prevention of symptomatic PCR-positive infection that was mild, moderate, or severe, with onset at least a week after the second dose of vaccine. In addition, the investigators determined efficacy against moderate and severe disease and analyzed various subgroups. Finally, they collected safety data with both solicited and unsolicited events. And what did they find? The investigators randomized almost 30,000 participants with more than 19,000 receiving vaccine and almost 10,000 in the placebo group. The demographics were fairly representative of the populations of the U.S., although there are also a few centers in Mexico. The vaccine was tolerated pretty well. There were the usual local and systemic side effects seen with all vaccines, and they generally resolved within a few days, but there are no other major events seen. Overall, there were 14 cases of COVID-19 in the vaccine group and 63 in the placebo group, giving an efficacy of about 90%. All the moderate and severe cases occurred in the placebo group. Altogether, these results are encouraging, another vaccine that has high efficacy. Of course, we learned little about how well this vaccine would work against the variants that are currently circulating, nor how long immunity will last. So Eric and Steve, I agree, it's terrific to see more high-quality RCT data establishing efficacy of a new technology. And as you know, I'm involved with the NIH-funded network that supports these kinds of studies, including this one, although I was not involved in this particular study. I think that an important observation from this study, as you point out, Eric, is its activity against the variants of concern. And in fact, it was the alpha variant predominantly. And that's becoming an important issue as we understand how vaccines work through time with potentially associated waning immunity and through changes in the challenge virus that is circulating in the community. And so for all of these vaccines, we're going to have to continue to understand the durability of the immune response and its protective efficacy, given what we all are being exposed to. I think there are some important aspects of the design here, such as the double-blind crossover, which is trying to allow continued understanding of efficacy after the initial efficacy was seen and the placebo recipients all now get vaccinated. So everyone is vaccinated, but there are statistical or novel design approaches 
to continue to try and understand efficacy while trying to optimize protection for all the volunteers in the study. How this particular technology will be best utilized, be it a primary vaccine series or understanding its role in mixing and matching with other vaccines, potentially as a booster, which many protein vaccines in the past have played such a role, is something that will be part of future research, but is very attractive as we have another potential tool in the toolbox. So looking more generally, how important is it to have additional vaccines available? Eve, I think a common theme that we've focused on in previous weeks has been the fact that most people in the world aren't vaccinated. There's a tremendous need for vaccines of various kinds. For now, I think which vaccine is superior is less important than which vaccines work and are available. And so I think that we really need to get vaccines out there to people, even if there are subtle differences among them in how effective they are or what sort of side effects they have. Vaccination remains extremely important, especially in much of the world where vaccines are completely or largely unavailable. So, Eric, I couldn't agree more that the most important thing is everybody on the planet needs to be vaccinated. And Steve, as I think about where does a new vaccine technology fit in, how can it be leveraged to increase global supply to get everyone vaccinated? In addition, how do we understand its role in boosting immunity in those who are previously infected or those who are previously vaccinated? And how can a new technology help us understand durability of immune response, as well as responsiveness to emerging variants. So there are many questions here, but fundamentally having another immunologic tool to enhance the immune response and protection is very attractive. And we need to rapidly understand how to utilize this tool in the context of the different populations that are at risk for acquiring COVID and getting severely ill with COVID. I'm also a big fan of using different technologies to approach the problem of vaccination. Thus far, we've used some old technologies like the inactivated vaccines and some really pretty brand new technologies like the viral vector vaccines and the mRNA vaccines. And in the long term, we don't know which ones of these will be best. When it comes to longer term issues such as durability of protection, et cetera, we're not going to have those data for a while. And I think it's important for us to be trying out different approaches to see which ones have the best characteristics. I don't expect that there'll be a single best vaccine. They will have different advantages and disadvantages. But I do think that more bets is better. Along those lines, Eric, as we have watched over the last several months, there are certain populations who respond to vaccines less well or not at all. And as you suggest, with new technologies, might we be able to overcome some of this immune sluggishness, if I can use that concept, in our immunocompromised patients or in those who have weakened immune systems? And so I do hope that studies will look at how do we engender immune responses in those who have had difficulty having an immune response, some of our most vulnerable. Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you, Eric.